Since the election of Scott Walker, Wisconsin has been seen as ground zero for debates about the appropriate role of government in the wake of the Great Recession. In a time of rising inequality, Walker not only survived a bitterly contested recall that brought thousands of protesters to Capitol Square, he was subsequently re-elected. How could this happen? How is it that the very people who stand to benefit from the strong government services not only vote against the candidates who support those services, but are vehemently against the very idea of big government? Catherine Kramer drove around Wisconsin, stopping in local coffee shops to see how rural Wisconsinites feel about the state of our Badger State. Out of that experience came politics of resentment, rural consciousness in Wisconsin, and the rise of Scott Walker. Kathy Kramer is the director of the Mortgage Center for Public Service and a professor in the Department of Political Science at UW-Madison. She was the keynote speaker at the League of Women Voters of Dane County's annual meeting on May 18, 2016, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. I want to start by telling you a tiny bit more about myself. This is the state of Wisconsin, as you all know, and this is where I grew up, Grafton, Wisconsin. Um, I engaged in this project. I started back in May of 2007 because I'm a lifelong Wisconsinite, meaning I was actually born in Illinois but moved to Grafton when I was four and have pretty much lived in this state except for um, graduate school. And when I was sprinting for tenure, I dreamed about a project I could do that would get me out and about in the state that I love and would enable me to study political understanding or the way people make sense of politics. I have learned over the years that to understand how people are interpreting politics, there's no better way for me to get at that than to listen to people talking to people in their own lives, people that they normally spend time with in the places where they normally spend time. So what I wanted to do was to invite myself into conversations in a wide variety of communities and listen to people. So what I did was to sample these communities from across the state. And then once I had sampled a given community, I called up the local extension office, the cooperative extension office in the county where a community fell or the local newspaper editor. And I would say, where in such and such Wisconsin can I go to get access to people talking with one another? And people pointed me to gas stations and diners and cafes and McDonald's and places of worship. And I would walk in and say, hi, I'm Kathy from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Do you mind if I join you this morning? Typically, these were morning coffee clutches. And people would laugh, like some of you are, right? They'd chuckle a little bit and think, this woman is nuts, this will be interesting, and say, sure, sit down, no problem. And I would give them a copy of my business card, a token of my appreciation, like post-it notes or pens or a football schedule, and then ask them, and, I, and then I would say, do you mind if I record this? Um, and then we would start talking, and I would start it off by saying, what are the big concerns here in this community? Tell me, what are you thinking about? What are you talking about these days? What are the big issues in your, in your community? And they would tell me, and we would talk and talk, and over the years, five years, well, actually it's extended a bit 
more than that, but over five years I spent time with 39 different groups in 27 communities asking people what their concerns were and trying to understand where they were coming from. About a year in, it's, it was no longer um, possible for me to ignore the fact that a lot of what I was hearing, especially in rural and small town Wisconsin, was resentment toward the cities, resentment toward people living in the cities. For one thing, many people had a sort of mental map in their minds of what Wisconsin is, and they carved it up into two basic regions. There's Madison and Milwaukee, sometimes referred to as the M&Ms, and then the rest of the state. And I'll show you a picture again of the state, just as a reminder that you know Madison and Milwaukee are the main population centers, power centers, industrial centers of the state, but there's a lot of other geography to the state. So people had a sense that, you know, there are two parts of the state. But they were resentful toward the cities in, in the following ways. Oftentimes when people talked with me about Madison, they were referring to the state legislature as well as the university. They knew that I was representing the university and I was intentionally asking questions about the university as part of my work. And so a lot of what I got was conversations about Madison and people perceived that Madison and Milwaukee, or I'm sorry, Madison and uh, meaning the, the state legislature and the university are of a piece. They're the power center in the state where a lot of important decisions get made that have impacts on their lives. And part of that, what people showed resentment toward it because they perceived that Madison sucks in all of their taxpayer dollars and spends them on itself or on Milwaukee and they don't see that taxpayer money coming back to their communities. Now as I explain this, please keep in mind that this is not a cross-section of the state or of any given community. What I was after was trying to get at the way people were interpreting politics and the kind of perspectives that underpin someone not wanting more government, wanting to cut government back. And so um, what I'm portraying for you here is the, the kind of attitudes that might underpin um, an, uh, a sentiment like that. Part of what I heard is the sense that rural communities, smaller communities in the state don't get their fair share in terms of money, public resources, but it also was a sense that smaller communities in the state don't get their fair share in terms of power. Again, this perception that important decisions are made in Madison or Milwaukee and communicated outward and there isn't enough listening going on in return. There was a third way though that people felt they weren't getting their fair share beyond money, beyond power, and that's in terms of respect. A sense that people living in the cities don't understand rural life, don't understand what's going on in our smaller communities, and don't respect that way of life or the values that people have in those smaller communities. I call this the politics of resentment. Um, and that is this, by that I mean this attitude of resentment toward the cities but also the way it works politically, which is what I want to spend the rest of my time explaining. So this, the, the resentment toward cities is one form of the politics of resentment. I would argue that in the presidential campaign, we are seeing it come across in various other forms, and I'd be happy to talk more about that. But I want to spend a little more time talking about what it, how it works in Wisconsin. 
Um, one way in which it works with relevance to our politics these days is that people would often say to me, look, Kathy, it's not that we're opposed to taxation. We're not opposed to paying higher taxes. We're not opposed to government programs. But the thing is, if we're asked to pay more money for taxes, it's not going to come back to us. It's not going to come back to our community. For example, people would hold up education oftentimes, talking about the fact that we care about education too. We want our kids to have good schools, but if they raise our taxes to, to improve education, that money's not going to come to us. It's going to go to Madison or Milwaukee, was their perception. Another way in which this worked is that people often were described to me public employees or government workers in their community as people who were driven by urban values. Even if they had lived in that community for a long time, there was a sense that the way public school teachers, for example, or members of the DNR do their jobs are driven by decisions that are made in the big cities. And those decisions for many folks were um, inconsistent with their own points of view, their own, their own concerns. Um, and that, um, my last point here is just, a, it's kind of obvious, but you can see how this would underpin support for Act 10. But another component of that is that part of the resentment toward public employees was not just that people perceived, often perceived, that they were driven by urban values, but there's um, uh, an interpretation of who works hard in the population that very much worked against public employees in these conversations. So it went something like this. People would say, um, look, I'm working really hard. Two, three jobs, manual labor, and I can't afford health care insurance for myself or for my family. And I'm being told that my taxes are going to go up so that I can pay for health insurance for those people, those public employees. Where, how is that fair? And you can imagine sometimes in the conversations, they know that I'm a public employee, right? And they would ask me, so do you have health care benefits? And I'd say, yes, I do. I'm very fortunate to have very good health insurance. Do you have a pension? And I'd say, yes, I do. And then they'd go on from there and say, see? <laughs> and how is it that you're driving around the state having coffee with people morning after morning? How is that hard work, right? So part of this is, you know, this sentiment that um, I work hard, I'm a hardworking American, and my taxpayer dollars are going to somebody, and they're going to people who are less deserving, was the interpretation. People don't um, work as hard as I do. So to come back to this question of how... How are people in our smaller communities and rural areas interpreting politics, understanding the appropriate role of government, for example? What I'm describing is a perspective that I call a rural consciousness, and it's part of this politics of resentment. But what I want to, to underscore is just how complicated it is. So it's resentment um, towards cities and city people, but it's also resentment towards public employees, and it's also resentment against people of color, and it's all in this context, right? This very divisive partisan context, and all of these things feed one another. It's not just that, for example, people are racist, 
that's too simple of a storyline to describe these perspectives. It's not just that people are against cities or that just that they're against public employees. All of these things um, feed one another. I want to briefly touch on something that I'm sure is um, in many of your minds at the moment, and that is, well, are they right? Are they really not getting their fair share? I mean, isn't it the case that our rural counties get more funding per capita than our urban counties? So I want to show you some of that data. Um, basically, these charts, there's a dot on these charts, to one dot for every, every one of the 72 counties in Wisconsin. And what this flat line is showing you is that on a per capita basis, according to 2010 allocations, if it, it looks like, if anything, our rural counties are getting slightly more taxpayer dollars per capita than our more urban counties. Federal aid, same thing. I could stop there, and you could say to yourself, see? They're ignorant. They don't know what they're talking about. But let me show you some other data. If you look at median household income, if you look at who's living below the poverty line, it's slightly higher in our rural counties. And if you look at unemployment, it's slightly higher in our rural counties. So in many respects, it makes sense that people are looking around their communities and thinking, we're working really hard and we're struggling to get ahead. So how does this matter for Wisconsin politics? Well, as you all know, Wisconsin has been ground zero for debates about the appropriate role of government for some years now, 2010, 2011, maybe before that even. And one way um, I want to share with you how this works is to go back to the 2010 gubernatorial campaign and how it showed up in uh, Governor Walker's rhetoric and how he very successfully tapped into some of these sentiments. So what I want to share with you is an excerpt from some of his remarks during a gubernatorial primary debate. And Governor Walker is talking about um, the high-speed train line that was proposed to go between Madison and Milwaukee. If you remember, that was a big part of the, that, um, that campaign. And this is what he said. If you look at what Jim Doyle and Tom Barrett, who was eventually Walker's opponent in the gubernatorial race, if you look at what Jim Doyle and Tom Barrett have put on the table in spending $810 million on a high-speed train line between Milwaukee and Madison with no assurance that it will go to Eau Claire or La Crosse or anywhere else, it's just about those two areas, Madison and Milwaukee, and it's about taking that money, money that will cost the citizens of Wisconsin up to $10 million per year, according to their numbers. I think it will actually be much more. That's $10 million that doesn't go to fix the road that goes up from West Salem through the cutout up to Black River Falls. It doesn't fix streets in La Crosse. That's money that's taken away from our local roads and our other transportation needs today. The dividing lines there are pretty clear. Who's the us and who's the them, right? In those words, true Wisconsinites are not people who live in those two areas. How does it show up in presidential politics? I won't spend a lot of time on this. Donald Trump has um, made my book very relevant. I guess I owe him some gratitude, but that's not exactly what I'm feeling. Um, I was struck uh, a few weeks ago, maybe as much as a month ago, some of you may remember this from the morning newspaper, the Wisconsin State Journal. There was a story about 
students at a varsity soccer match in Elkhorn. And students on the Elkhorn team were shouting at the Beloit players. I'm assuming some of them looked Latina. They shouted, Trump, build that wall. This kind of rhetoric is impacting us, and that was, you know, that example made it inescapable that the rhetoric of the presidential campaign, resentment is probably a mild way to put it, is impacting us. So I want to leave you with some thoughts about solutions. I'm thinking about solutions as much as you all are, and increasingly so as the, as the hours go on. One thing I think is that it's very important that we ask more of our elected officials that during campaigns and otherwise, when people are making arguments to us about whom we should support and which policies we support, we demand that they make those arguments not on the backs of our fellow citizens, but on the merits of the policy. I also wonder um, whether we ought to question more whether politicians are actually heeding the concerns of their constituents. Are people actually listening to people in rural areas here? Who are they paying attention to? I think it's important for us to question. I also wonder, I've talked primarily about rural areas here in smaller communities, but that's just one slice of our politics today, right? There's resentment in multiple directions. If we're just sticking with geography, you know, the question arises, do urban legislators understand rural areas, but vice versa, right? Do the people representing the smaller communities in our state understand what's going on in our cities? I also think that we can ask more of each other, and I actually think that there's more potential for change in that respect than with respect to our elected officials at the moment. And by that I mean there's just not very much attention these days in our culture to the common good to public service. I mean, you all are a very skewed sample. I mean, here you are, right? But how hard is it to get it to, for, to get people, young people, to join the League of Women Voters, right? I got my talking to before your meeting started. I mean, I think it's really important for us, when we see it, to lift it up and emphasize how important it is to take time to, for public service to take time to point out those acts of uh, people giving themselves for the common good. I also think it's important for us to point out what we are getting from government. Government is demonized to a really damaging degree these days, and I think it's very important that we do understand what it is that government does for us. And I mean that for people of all points on the political spectrum, because whether you're a conservative Republican, a liberal Democrat, for democracy to work, government needs to work, and we need to, at some level, believe, believe in government. So the last thing I want to say is that really what my book is addressing, what my work is addressing, is this thing that happens when we hear about views with which we don't agree, and we say, how can people be so stupid? And I urge you all to question that. I urge you to question whether the problem is that people are stupid or that voters are ignorant. Because much of what I heard in these years of spending time with people were very concrete, carefully thought out reasons for why they think the way they do. 
I may not agree with all of them, but they seem pretty legitimate and grounded in some pretty concrete circumstances to me. So like I said, this is not very uplifting, so I'm going to leave you with a joke. But basically what this is, is my favorite conversation from all these hours of time I spent in diners and gas stations. And I want to set the stage a little bit. This is a lovely community in Central West Wisconsin. And the first year I started this project, I think it was back in May of, or June of 2007, I had a hard time finding a group of people in this community to spend time with until someone in town finally told me, well, there is the dice game. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I was told that if I went to a diner on Main Street and walked through the curtain at the back of the restaurant, there would be a dice game going on between 6.30 and 7.30. And so I went, and the first time I went, they were very shocked to see a woman in the room. <laughs> Um, but then they stopped playing dice and talked with me for about 45 minutes. And at the end of the time, they said, do you know how to play ship captain and crew? And I said, yes, I do. <laughs> well, bring your money purse next time you come. And I said, okay. So I then, in subsequent visits, played dice with them. And on the third visit, I'm playing dice with them. And also, there's a horse auction going on in town. And I'm sharing this with you so that you get a sense of um, just how delightful these conversations were, even though the messages that I were receiving, was receiving was, were pretty sobering. All these names are made up just to protect their identities. Henry says to me, why don't you buy one of them horses at the horse auction? I got a trailer. And I say, well, I'm not sure where I would keep him. They know that I live very close to Camp Randall and they can park in my driveway if they ever come for a game, you know. And Henry says, huh? And I say, well, I'm not sure where I would keep him. And Henry says, oh, you keep him in Madison. That's where they keep all the bulls. <laughs> and then he says, well, basically, all you got to do is buy the front end of the horse. They got the back end in Madison. <laughs> so that was all very funny. But... I was winning the dice game over and over. And it's not high stakes until 725 when you put in a dollar as opposed to a quarter. And so I'm very uncomfortable. I'm still very uncomfortable about that. I was back with this group a few weeks ago and they said, so where are your coins? I said, no way am I ever <laughs> playing dice with you again. And because by this time, I mean, this is three years into my study, I know very well this perception out there, you know, that Madison, the wealthy Madisonites come in, take all our money, leave, don't return. So I'm joking with them because I'm so uncomfortable about the fact that I'm winning so much money. And I say, well, I come and I ask for your thoughts and I take your money. And Richard says, oh, I tell you what, that's good though because we have so little of it. And I say, well, it all goes to Madison anyway, right? Ha, ha, ha. And Howard says, we expect nothing less from Madison. And Richard says, at least it won't cost any postage to get it down there now. <laughs> so thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to Professor Kathy Kramer. She's the author of the book, Politics of Resentment. 
Rural Consciousness in Wisconsin, and the Rise of Scott Walker. She was the keynote speaker at the League of Women Voters of Dane County's annual meeting on May 18, 2016. The talk was held at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. That's lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speaker and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted if credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.